Revelation chapter 3, I'm a little bothered by the fact that no one seems to appreciate the art and the time that I put forth into uh, these slides. Do you guys get it? Because it's Laodicea, and it's in grayscale. Because Laodicea, you know, it, there is no more black and white. Things aren't... I'm getting to that part. I think that's called black and white. Like the image. No, <laughs> if you were to look at how I did it on PowerPoint, Cameron, you'll see it's actually called 50% grayscale. So it's not 100% one way or 0% the other way. It's 50% grayscale. Thank you, Sam. It's not black. It's not white. It's right in the middle. Oh, goodness gracious. Did I just <laughs> it is a representation of the day and age which we live in, where absolute truth is no more. Every, no more. Everything is relative. It, what does that truth mean to you? What does this What does the Bible say to you here? What does this passage mean to you? I just thought maybe I'd get one compliment on it. You know. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, 50% fifty grayscale. Ah, Google. It actually wasn't that hard. It wasn't that hard. All right, all right, all right. Revelation chapter 3. So, tonight, everybody, we officially close out part one of our study of Revelation. <laughs> I know. The, the biggest part has been church history. We've spent, what is this, week 10 now? We've spent 10 weeks going over, I think, no, week 10 includes chapter 1. So nine weeks going over church history to conclude the first third of Revelation as far as the way that the natural outline breaks down of things. We covered the seventh church period last week with Laodicea. And tonight we're going to wrap a nice bow on not only Laodicea, we're going to wrap a nice bow on church history, and it's going to set us up for what comes immediately thereafter, Revelation chapter 4, the rapture of the church, and the things that are going to unfold hereafter, what Christ said to John. So Revelation chapter 3, I, I felt it right that we couldn't just end last week with looking at the failure of the church. As I would mentioned, it's, it's the Cinderella story. Instead of Cinderella... Finding Prince Charming and living happily ever after. No, Cinderella, she's blitzed at the ball. She misses the stroke of midnight. It kind of reminds me of the, uh, the parable of the, the ten virgins in the book of Matthew. How they had, their oil, or they had their lamps, but they had no oil in it. They weren't ready for when the bridegroom to come back. When the bridegroom came, here they were scrounging around trying to find the oil, trying to find that which is needed in order for them to be ready for his return. They had no oil. And so when he came back, they missed the boat. Beautiful picture of the rapture of the, of the church, even though doctrinally speaking it's more towards Israel, but more on that as we go further in our study. But man, isn't it kind of sad to think about everything the church has been through? Everything we've looked at over the course of the last nine weeks, all of the persecution, everything that God went through to get the Bible into our hands, and it's being squandered in the church today by humanitarianism, by pseudo-intellectualism, by doing things where you have one foot in the world and another foot on top of a closed Bible and calling it Christian, where people aren't completely sold out for Christ, but hey, at the same time, at least they're not completely involved in sin and in the world system. No, it's this perfect blend or balance as they like to call it. As we saw last week, what does that kind of a lifestyle make Jesus Christ want to do? Puke. Spew. He will spew this church out of his mouth. We'll see one way in which I think that might be the case later on tonight. But man, I'll tell you what. Just because we are in the Laodicean church period, the church... Uh, I almost said age. That's not technically doctrinally correct. The Laodicean church period. Just because we are in it doesn't mean we are cursed to live Laodiceans. Do you realize that? We're not cursed to be Laodiceans. This does not have to be said of us. It doesn't have to be said about First Baptist Church of Jackson. It doesn't have to be said about Greentown. It doesn't have to be said about any other church that we launch out from here forward or any other missionaries we send out. It does not have to be the case for them or us. But even more specifically... The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we are members in particular. It doesn't have to be said about you. 
It may end up being the case for this youth ministry. It may end up being the case for this church. It doesn't have to be said of you on the judgment seat of Christ. You can be a Philadelphian living in a Laodicean time. You can. It's possible. And that's what tonight's all about. The prescription for the Laodicean plague. Again, we kind of covered what Laodicea is all about. There's nothing commendable about this church. It is all negative. And so we're going to relook at the counsel that God gave to this church. Follow along with me in verse 18. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. Because they thought they were rich. They believed it wholeheartedly and didn't realize it because self-deception is the biggest plague going on in Laodicea. And white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice... And open the door, I will come into him, and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So point one on your outline. We already just saw in verse 18, he says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. We need to buy from the Lord true and eternal riches that have been tried or purified in the fire. It has stood the test of time. It has stood the test of scrutiny. What is it? Letter A, gold tried in the fire. As you cross-reference it, we're going to look at a couple of these passages tonight. It is simply a faith that pleases God and produces patience, experience, hope, unashamedness, wisdom, godliness, and righteousness. Everybody turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I need three volunteers to turn elsewhere. Sam, do Job 23, Caleb, Proverbs 17, Andy, Isaiah 48. Is that the old? It's in the Apocrypha. Yes, it's in the old. That was a joke. That's, is that what you guys said? Okay. JBI joke, sorry. I thought it's on your outline. Three. First Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Follow along with me as we read. We just talked about this the last two Sundays, talking about patience. Verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with what? All right, three of you are in that passage. Though it be tried with what? might be found unto praise and honor and glory when at the appearing of Jesus Christ, which, oh, as a reminder, happens immediately after this church period. He's coming back soon. It might be tonight. It might be next week. We don't know the day and the hour, but it's coming soon. That's been the entire point of going through Revelation. Do you wonder was the tagline question of this entire study. Do you wonder how close we are to the end? We just spent exhaustively the last nine weeks looking to see. Yep. Not to mention, after chapter 3 comes chapter 4. He's coming back. What's your faith like? Does it please Him? Are you going through trials? Are you being tested? And are you doing it patiently? Are you coming through more refined in your walk with Christ, more purified? To whereas the things that used to distract you before, they don't now. The, the, the things, the friends, or the things that used to entertain you, the things that used to grab your attention that was immature, suddenly they don't have any cling or pull to your heart. You don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. No, you're being more mature. You're being more refined, more purified because God is getting that dross out of you. Again, Romans 5, 3 through 5, we've looked at this this last couple of Sundays. That through the trying of your faith, through trials, it brings forth patience and patience experience. You get to know God more personally through that. But let patience have her perfect work in James chapter 1. Sam, Job 23, we just saw this literally this past Sunday. What did Job have to say about it? But he knows the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. 
as gold, pure. Sam, Proverbs 17.3. Sorry, Caleb, wrong wrestler. 17.3. The thinning pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord trieth the hearts. What is it he tries? The hearts. The heart. Remind me again, what does Jeremiah 17, verse 9 say about our hearts? Deceitful above all things. Ever been lied to? Ever have anybody deceive you before? Have you ever believed a lie? The one that is the most deceitful is the one that's closest to your own heart. That which we will tell ourselves, that which we will believe about ourselves or about somebody else. It is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It desperately wants to control your life. Do not let your heart lead your life. Do not follow the world's advice and follow your heart. As so many teachers, as so many parents have said for a millennial now. <laughs> follow your heart. That's desperately wicked. It wants to destroy my walk with Christ. It wants to take control back from Christ after I willingly yielded over my heart over to Him for salvation. Lord, You have all of me because You gave all of You. Every single day of your life, your heart is trying desperately to take back control of what it lost when the old man was crucified on the Christ in Galatians 2.20. Don't let it. Every day, keep it in check. Guard your heart. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. You have to stand guard. Anybody ever seen the, the tomb of the unknown soldier in Washington? You understand what the guards are like there? They are on watch 24-7, protecting that tomb. Always vigilant, making sure that no one desecrates it, that nobody does anything wrong to it. That is how you have to be with your heart. Why? Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and will try to find any way it can to take back control of your life. Remember 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Ye are not your own. If you're genuinely saved in here and you've given your life over to Christ. You're not your own. Your life is not your own. That's why every decision you make, should I go to this college? Should I go to that college? Should I go to college at all? Should I date this person? Should I not be dating at all? Should I be playing this sport? Should I not be involved in this extracurricular activity? Every decision that you come in contact with on a daily basis, you need to filter it through the idea of, is this just something that my heart wants? Or God, are you leading me here? Because I don't want to be in control because I'm dead. Colossians 3 says, ye are dead. Your life is hid in Christ. What does he want? What is he leading you to do? That's what you have to filter every decision through. You do that and your faith will please God because you are trying it by fire. Remind me again, uh, Jeremiah 23. What did he have to say about the word of God? Is it not like a fire? Well, when you search out the scriptures, that's a fire that'll purge out any kind of selfish motive you might have for the reason you do things. So seek out the scriptures. Seek a multitude of counselors and lay it down at the foot of the cross in prayer. That's how. Andy, Isaiah 48.10. Behold, I have refined thee, hmm. not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Hmm. You know what? Some things God does burn out through just seeking a multitude of counselors spiritually in His Word, seeking a multitude of counselors from your leaders, from godly parents, from disciplers, from your pastors. God is able to burn a lot of things out in your life through seeking them and seeking His Word. He's able to do and move mountains. If you have a, a faith as a grain of mustard seed, He can move those mountains in your prayer life. But there are just some things in your life that they are not going to be getting rid of unless you go through the furnace and the trial of affliction. That's what we've been talking about on Sundays. If you need more information on that, may I refer you back to the podcast. 
We've been talking about these trials and these testing, this time of testing that you're going through because it's going to work patience in your life. It's going to purify you and make you more mature. Remember what he said in 2 Peter 1, we touched on it at the end of last Sunday, that by doing that, he makes you and I partakers of his divine nature. Summarize that in one word. I gave you a little bit of a hint of that with what's coming up this Sunday. Godliness. Like God, in God's image, you are becoming more like Him. As we're going to see this Sunday, it is His plan, and it has always been His plan since the beginning, nay, since before the foundation of the earth, for you to be like Him. Some things, it only comes through trials of affliction. So are you going through anything that is afflicting you right now? The loss of a friend. Thoughts that you're having of feeling inadequate or not good enough. Massive breakup. I don't know. Fill in the blank. What is your going through? Are you being afflicted? What is God showing you through that? Letter B. The currency and cost required to buy this gold, it's humility. Kind of already covered this in letter A, the willingness to be tried of God. The willingness to say, not my will, I do want to do this, Lord, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Do you remember what the context of it was when Christ said that? The Garden of Gethsemane. You know what Gethsemane means? The oil press. It was a garden of olives. And the only way you can get olive oil is by taking that olive, that fruit, and pressing it and squeezing it and putting it under immense pressure and affliction in order for it to produce the oil that you need. In the garden of the oil press, Jesus Christ himself was being pressed because he's 100% God, but he was also 100% man. And he did not want to go through the suffering of the cross. He did not want to partake of that cup. He didn't want to go through the trial of affliction. But he ended it with, nevertheless, thy will be done, not mine. That's humility. Look at Philippians 2. Later on tonight, you'll see again that he was so humble even to the death of the cross. He, be, he humbled himself just by the fact that he left his throne on high and put on a cloak of flesh to conceal the glory of God. A cloak of flesh to conceal that Shekinah brightness. Remember when Moses came down off the mountain in Exodus and his face, he was so radiant, radiating the light of God that the people down below, they were like, oh, Moses, put a veil on. We can't see. It's blinding. Remember that? That's how bright and how shining and how pure and holy Jesus Christ is. And he decided to come down here and to humble himself by putting on that cloak of flesh. He left being praised on high by angels constantly 24-7 to be with men who would be a contradiction of sinners against him and who would eventually nail him to a tree. Humility. Have people that treat you like garbage? What's your reaction to them? Are you humble? Or do you bite back? Christ was humble. He could have answered him and rebuked him, but he answered him not a word. Let her see. If you are not willing to sacrifice your pride and self-centeredness to the Lord in some areas of your life, is that what it says? If you are not willing to sacrifice your pride and self-centeredness to the Lord in all, might want to double, triple underline that. In all areas of your life, you will never possess the faith it takes to make an eternal impact on the glory of God. That might be a statement you want to look at again before you go to bed tonight and contemplate it and think real hard and evaluate, Lord, where am I at on this? Have I bought the gold that's been tried in fire? 
Or am I rich and increased with goods and uh, I got need of nothing? I'm good, God. Thank you, though. I'm doing okay. Number two. He says in Revelation 3.18, Cam, I hate your computer. You have a pop-up up here. I don't open that. <laughs> that was stupid. Do, do, do. Anybody remember what he says in Revelation 3.18? Specifically the second part of it. Counsel that he to buy of me gold tried in the furnace of earth and... Well, now it's up here. White raiment, <laughs> that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Number two, he says to cover your nakedness with the white raiment of God's righteousness. Letter A, white raiment in the Bible, we kind of touched on this in another passage, but it simply means holiness. Holiness. Does anybody remember where we saw white raiment in this study prior to this? Prior to Revelation? It's on your outline. It's the next verse. I'm whispering creepily because I hear that everyone likes it. Yeah, what church period is that? Sardis, yes. <laughs> Revelation 3, 5. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Somebody remind me, what was Sardis all about? What does the name Sardis mean? Stardust. Not stardust. Like a small Sardis. Fish. Small fish. Not sardine. <laughs> Sardis. <laughs> Under the church of the small fish. <laughs> it might actually work in some cases. Red ones. Why were they given that name? Because they were martyred. It was one of the grossest, most horrific times of bloodshed in all of human history. Specifically with the church. Specifically with people who believe the exact same things that you believe now. That's what happened to them. But they overcame. They didn't bow the knee to Rome and everything that was going on there. And as a result of them overcoming, result of them saying no to the worldliness of, of the church in Rome, they were clothed in white raiment. Man, turn over to Matthew 17. How are you guys doing tonight? Better doing Anybody else's week going rough so far? Yeah. Maybe you should revisit letter A. Sorry, number one, not letter A. All right, Matthew 17, look at verse 2. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a mountain, and look what he does. Jesus was transfigured before them. In other words, he pulled back the veil of his flesh, and he revealed the brightness of God the Father to them. His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was what? White as light. You guys remember back in the first week of this study when we looked at Revelation chapter 1, and we saw the description that Jesus Christ gives of himself, that it's nothing like any of the pictures you might see hanging up in a church or in your home, or when you do a Google search of Jesus? But he's got these, this white hair, he's got eyes as a flame of fire, he's got feet as brass, this is the same description of him. He has white raiment as light, white as light. Jump down to, actually, turn over to chapter 28. Look at verse 3. And this is after his resurrection. The stones rolled away. Look at verse 2 for context. Behold, there was a great earthquake. The angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. You notice how it said, the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord. Trace that phrase throughout Scripture, see what you find. Of the angel of the Lord. Might be surprised what you'll find. It's Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, whenever the angel of the Lord shows up, his countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as what? Snow. Again, this is after the resurrection. This is after the cross, after the hell that he experienced by taking upon himself. God who knew no sin 
literally became sin by taking upon himself not just every sin that you've ever committed, not just every sin that you will commit, every sin that everybody who has ever been born on this earth, he took it upon himself and experienced the torment and the wrath of God the Father pouring out all of his indignation upon his only son for you. After that affliction, after that trial, he's here in white. White raiment. He's holy. Connection with that of Sardis. I got to ask you again, what has your faith cost you lately? 2 Timothy 3.12, a verse every Christian should have memorized. We've said it again and again in this class. Yea, and all that will live godly like God in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. What's your faith cost you lately? Letter B, you must put on raiment to cover your nakedness. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. On the screen here, I have Galatians 3.27. Paul's saying, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have what? Put on Christ. You put on the raiment. You put on His holiness. You've been baptized and immersed into Him. That is your position before God. He no longer sees your sinfulness. Romans 13.12, similar. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Uh, let me ask you guys a question. How often do you change clothes? Daily. What did you say? I thought you said once or twice a week. I bought it for a second. Anyways. <laughs> Sometimes once or twice a day. But surely, hopefully, daily, right? Why? Because if you keep on with the clothes that you had, is it going to remain clean? No, it's going to get dirty. So you have to take off those and put on new clothes at least daily. Why is this any different? We get dirtied and muddied up from this world constantly. Sometimes throughout the day, if not every single day. We need to put off maybe the garbage that we saw or heard at school, that we see or hear at home. And we need to put on Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 3, look with me in verse 8. But now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Yes, cussing, but maybe even jesting and joking around with people. I didn't say your name, Andy. I do love you guys. <laughs> Verse 9. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the who? Old man. That's the old man in Galatians 2.20 that was nailed to the cross. The moment you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says that old man, that, that old nature of yours that you were born into this world with, that you inherited from Adam, the moment of your salvation, that old man was put to the tree and he was crucified with Christ. Yet you still live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in you. Sorry for the first and second person transference. That was a little weird. Verse 10. And have put on the who? New man. New man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. You need to constantly renew your mind, as Romans chapter 12 talks about, by being in his word, by, by being in prayer, by being in the fellowship of other believers. Verse 11. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian or Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. How do you genuinely feel about the people in this room? Are you merciful to them when they anger and upset you? 
when they cause an offense or a stumbling block to you? Do you have bowels? Do you, in your inwards, do you feel for them? Are you merciful to them? Or is it all just surface? Because inwardly, you have all of these things. Anger, wrath, malice towards them. Humbleness of mind, kindness, meekness, long-suffering. Verse 13, forbearing one another and what? Forgiving. And what? Forgiving one another. And forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Do you want to mature and grow in your walk with God? If you don't have a selfless love that expects nothing in return towards people, you will not mature. That's what that verse says. Which is the bond of perfectness. Verse 15, and let, it's a choice, the peace of God rule in your hearts. That word rule there, it basically means referee. Let the peace of God be a referee to let you know when you're going out of bounds. Let the peace of God let you know that you've committed a foul. That you've committed a foul against somebody else or against the entire game. And to stop the game and to cause you to regroup. That's what the word rule means there. To the which also ye are called in one body and be ye thankful. How do you do all this? How do you put on Christ daily? Well, verse 16. Let... Again, it implies choice. The word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Uh, Why did we spend so long looking at that entire passage? Oh, because there is so much good stuff there. But even more importantly, do you guys want to know who the book of Colossians is written to? If you say those in Colossae, yes. But I hope you would think I wouldn't ask a simple question like that. I would for Andy, just to see if he's paying attention or not. Turn over to chapter 4. I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen this before, if you've ever read the book of Colossians. But here at the very end, verse 16, he says... And when this epistle, which epistle is that? All right, so two people know for sure. I need everyone's help on this. Which epistle is this that he's saying? Thank you. Thank you. Is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the (gasps) Laodiceans. And that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Oh, goody, goody. I wonder what that said. Here in your Bible, you have a letter specifically to Laodiceans. Might be good to do some devotions in it if you're struggling with Laodicea. C. If you are not willing to live out practical holiness in your life, your nakedness comes out in the form of hypocrisy. And it's noticeable to all. You say you love a holy God and that He has changed your life, but there's little to no changes when compared to the world. You're nothing more than a spiritual streaker. Yes, that's your actual blank. You're nothing more than a spiritual streaker. Running around without the raiment, without the holiness of Christ. It's Laodicean. It's lukewarm. All right, next. Everyone turn over to John chapter 9. And I need four volunteers to read. Carson, don't go to Isaiah 34, 16. Kendall, John 5, 39. Brendan, Joshua 1, 8. Caleb, Proverbs 23, 12. You already had a chance. Oh, I'm going back around the beginning here. He don't read well. Sorry, grammar Nazi here. All right. Everybody else, John chapter 9. He said in Revelation 3.18 that not only are we supposed to buy gold tried in the furnace of the earth, not only are we supposed to put on white raiment, but we are to anoint our eyes with ISAB so that we can clearly see. ISAB in letter A simply means believing the Bible. shared with you guys that story of the uh, snake oil 
that was going around Laodicea, the actual historical Laodicea in 90 AD, thinking it was helping people, but really it was not. Somebody got rich off of it, and people kept buying it. Great analogy for the church today, with a lot of the charlatans that's going on selling Christ behind a pulpit. Where am I at? John 9. Look at verse 6. When he had thus spoken, Jesus, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is being interpreted sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him, but he said, I am he. Therefore, verse 10, said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. Right there, verse 11. He heard from Christ and he did something with what he heard. His actions proved his faith. His work backed up the fact that he had faith. Faith comes first, the works follow. If there are no works that prove you are a child of the king, you might want to evaluate whether or not you are genuinely saved. That's 1 John. If you're saved, if you have faith, there are works that follow to demonstrate that faith. That's what this man did. He heard from Christ, he believed what Christ said, and he did something with it. So letter A, ISAB, it's believing the Bible. Not only that, 1 John, speaking of 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, it says, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. By the way, oil, oil press, or olive press rather, where you get olive oil. You know what oil is a picture of in the Bible? Oh, gee. Talked about the ten virgins in the parable there in the book of Matthew. Oil's coming up a lot. You know what's a picture of in the Bible? The Holy Spirit. Those ten virgins, they didn't have oil in their lamps. They weren't saved, so they weren't ready when the bridegroom came back. The anointing, the anointing of oil, which was a custom they did for Samuel and David and, and the book of 1 Samuel to anoint a king. They poured oil over their heads. The anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, the Holy Spirit. And ye need not that any man teach you. Because Christ even said in John 16 that the Spirit would teach you all things. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things and is truth and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in Him. The Spirit of God is always going to abide in you. The Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, if you have called upon Him to save you, He is permanently inside your heart, inside your vessel, your temple, and sealed until the day of redemption, Ephesians 1.13. You are sealed permanently, but you and I, we can choose every single day whether or not we're going to abide in Christ. We can choose every single day if we're going to be near Him, be close with Him in fellowship, and anoint our eyes so we can see clearly, or not. The choice is yours to make every single day. So let the peace of God rule in your hearts. In order to believe the Bible, letter B, you have to choose to, Isaiah 34, 16. Seek ye, out, uh, uh, seek ye out of the book of the Lord and read, No one of these shall fail, none shall want her mate, for my mouth it hath commanded, and his spirit it, got, it hath gathered them. What's point number one? Seek. It out and read it. Read it. You can't just read it. You have to seek it out first, which implies intention, which implies desire, which implies you want to. If you don't seek first, you are not going to find, though you may read. We've talked about this before. Number two, John 5, 39. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. 
So not only do you seek it out and read it, but you are to do what? Search the scriptures. Search implies studying. It implies spending time therein. It implies really contemplating. Do I genuinely believe this? Or do I just say I do? Do I honor God with my mouth and my lips? And is my heart far from Him? Well, when you study it out, you'll find out. So you won't be ashamed. So you'll be able to know the answer to that question and make the appropriate changes if your heart's not really truly in it. Number three, Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. So what are you supposed to do after you seek it out and read it, and after you search or study it? Meditate, meditate on it. I'm telling you guys, there's so much noise going on right now. So much noise of just trying to finish out the school year. So much noise for trying to finish up senior year in your entire high school career for some of you guys. So much noise going on personally within your own lives. So much noise maybe going on within your own homes. So much noise going on with just these stupid devices constantly scrolling up to funny videos or constantly scrolling up for news and getting your mind filled in with all the news and all the junk going on in there. And you just need to, as we talked about before, take a step back and be still and know that He is God and get away from the distractions and be with Him. We've talked about this a couple weeks ago and maybe it was a good reminder to have this right now. Because man, I tell you what, we as Laodiceans, it just becomes easier and easier for us to get distracted. Easier and easier for us to just buy into the noise and to not be quiet. We need to always be on the go. And I think it has to do with what Daniel chapter 12 verse 4 prophesied. That in the last days people are going to run to and fro and knowledge is going to be increased. And you can get so much knowledge at the flick of your fingers by picking up your phone. And you get things so quick. And you get things so rapidly. And you can go to places on the far other side of the world so quickly that your entire life just becomes rapid and quick and fast. And no one is taking the time just to slow down and settle in and just be still. You know what God had to say to Elijah in 2 Kings? Elijah does this great miracle, had such boldness with God in his prayer. When he challenges the prophets of Baal, saying, Hey, let's see who God really is. You call down Baal, I'm going to call down God. Here's what we're going to do. We have the sacrifice here. You guys call down Baal, see if he brings fire. I'm going to do the exact same thing. The only difference Elijah does, though, is when it's his turn, he gets all of these buckets of water, and he douses the altar with it. He makes it as impossible as ever for fire to consume that offering. He was that bold in his prayer. He was that bold and confident in his God that he would do that. And God, what does he do? Sends fire, licks up every drop of water that was around and on that offering, and he burns up some of the prophets of Baal too. Imagine what that would do to your faith when God does something like that to you. If God has done something like that recently, something you could not explain, what does that do to your faith? Probably the same exact thing it did for Elijah. Because just a few verses later as you read, he hears that Jezebel is sending people after him to kill him. And he goes and he hightails it and he gets scared. And he runs to a cave. And you know what God tells him? Hey, you know, I did a really loud big thing there. I did a lot of noise over there. But you want to know where I'm really found at? It's not in the tempest. It's in a still, small voice. Elijah, listen. I've got 7,000 prophets that haven't bowed the knee to Baal yet. You're not the only one. It may seem like you're the only one. It may seem like you're the only person who exists and that no one cares. But you're not. That's what God was telling Elijah, a great man of God. Even he struggled with those things and he needed to be still to hear from God, to hear that still small voice. 
So I'm telling you, even if you're not looking up junk that you shouldn't be on your phones, if this is just a distraction from hearing that still small voice of God, get away from it. Turn it off. Turn it off. You're not missing that many funny videos or news stuff anyways. Get away from it for an hour, two hours, and meditate. Think about what God's been teaching you on Sundays, on Wednesdays, in discipleship, in your own personal quiet time. Think on those things. Connect the dots. I'm telling you guys, I didn't plan for so much of what we've covered in Revelation to then tie in what we're covering on Sundays. God just does that. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. And last, Proverbs 23, 12. Apply thine heart unto instruction and thine ears to the words of knowledge. So what's number four? Apply thine heart unto it. When you hear that still small voice from the scriptures that you've been seeking and reading and studying out, what's he telling you to do? Whatever he's telling you to do, do it. Whatever he's telling you to do, do it. Number four. Oh boy, this scares me. Just as a refresher, Revelation 3.19, to the Laodiceans, he says, As many as I love, does Jesus Christ love you? Are you saved? Then this is to you. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, I spank. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. He uses that word zealous. I think I touched on this last week. Do you know the first time that it shows up in scriptures? Turn over to uh, Numbers 25. Numbers 25. This will be the last passage we turn to tonight. Um, can I get one more volunteer, though, to turn to Titus 2.14? Andy, thank you for patiently waiting. Numbers 25, look in verse... Well, before we read verse 11, you guys know the context of this? Remember Pergamos? The intermingling and the much marriage that was going on between God's people and those of the daughters of Moab. They were committing whoredoms with each other. They were intermingling and eating things sacrificed unto gods. Maybe even sacrificing a few babies there unto the God of Moab. And there's so much going on. And God tells Moses, take all the heads of the people and hang them up. Slay them. And then there's this one particular person. He takes a Midianitish woman of the daughters of Moab and he goes before the congregation of the Lord in front of everybody and starts to fornicate with her. And who knows, given the context of what's going on there, there might have been more things involved. More people involved. It was an awful, atrocious sight that was going on. And then you look at verse 7. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it. He rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. Look at verse 11. God speaking to Moses, and he says, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel. God was ready to wipe each and every single one of them out in the nation of Israel. And one person, one person turned and changed the course of history. It just takes one. You think you're insignificant? Look again. It just takes one. To turn the wrath of God away from these people. While he was what? Zealous. That's the very first mention of that word found in the entire Bible. He was zealous for my sake among them that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. 
Wherefore say, Behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace, and he shall have it, and his seed after him. He's going to be fruitful. I'm going to bless what he does now, because he was zealous for me. Even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God, and made an atonement for the children for the children of Israel. There's something I think about when I think of this, this passage and everything, and it's a military term. For those of you who have no care at all for the military, number one, shame on you. But number two, bear with me because are you not a soldier in 2 Timothy 2.3? Are you not a soldier in the Lord's army? Then this works and applies to you too. But there's a military term in the, Bi or not in the Bible, in, in the armed forces that's called violence of action. Violence of action. You know what it means? It means that you have the speed, the strength, and the aggression to completely obliterate your enemy. I didn't say wound your enemy. The speed, the strength, and the aggression to completely and utterly decimate and dominate your enemy. That is a term that is used in our armed forces for when they go into a fight. There's a book called Chosen Soldier. And this guy was talking about violence of action. When his men or he himself are going through a barrage and a hail of bullets and a firefight. When the fiery darts, if you will, are coming at them. Here's what he had to say. What's the one thing we can do? Remember we looked at that a couple Sundays ago? One thing. What's the one thing we can do to overcome mistakes when the bullets start flying? Do you give in to the pressures of Satan when the fiery darts are coming your way? What's the one thing you can do to prevent that? Violence of action. So don't let the volume of fire slack off. In other words, you have a sword. You have a two-edged sword that you can come up against as an offensive weapon against your enemy, the world, your flesh, and the devil. What verses are you memorizing to prevent you from falling into that sin, from giving into the conformity and the pressures of the world and your friends at school? What weapons do you have? Do you have just one verse? You better stock up on ammo. You need to let the bullets fly. You need to have a stockpile of verses to help you defeat the enemy. Violence of action. That's what you have to do to overcome the mistakes. And he says, don't let the volume of fire slack off. Keep the pressure on the enemy. Don't let him regroup. Note what he says next. And talk it up. Yell it out along the line. Winning a firefight is often a matter of gaining the initiative and maintaining the initiative. So often in our walk with God, when we are suffering or when we're going through a fiery trial that that's, is inflicted from Satan, very much like Job, it's always us reacting to what he's doing. We should already have a stockpile of verses ready to fight, ready to take him on. According to Ephesians 6, not to beat the devil, but no, that we may stand, that we may withstand, and that we may have done all to stand so that we don't go down in the firefight. Part of that is keeping the initiative, but again, note what he says in the middle. Talk it up. I noticed something this past week. It's part of what was getting me down because I'm thinking, is it me? Do I need to do something? But I started just scrolling through the group me, going back as far as last August, and I noticed something. The talk has kind of slacked for a little bit. It's not as talkative. It's not as frequent as it once was. I was seeing things on there like prayer requests. I was seeing people put Bible verses in there of what God's been showing them. It was almost every single day to every two days, people talking it up, yelling it out along the line that they were taking heat, that they were taking fire. And I've noticed it's died off. I know the enemy isn't taking a day off. I know the fiery darts are coming to each and every single one of us every day. So that's not stopping. We've got to talk it up we got to yell it out along the line. 
If we want to win whatever firefight solid as a whole is going to go through, whatever firefight you are going through, we got to talk it up. We got to be stockpiled up in our ammo and we got to take the initiative. We have to maintain the initiative. That means you deal with things with speed. You got a sin issue in your life, you deal with it quickly. That means we deal with things with strength. Not our strength, but the strength of the Lord. Because when we're weak, then He is strong. And we have to do it with aggression or zeal, in other words, like our man Phineas. We got to deal with it quick. We have to be aggressive. Whatever's causing you to stumble, whatever's hindering in your walk, whether it's sin or even if it's just your thoughts hindering you, thrust a javelin through it. Do it quickly, do it aggressively. Take the initiative and talk it up. Be willing to be made vulnerable amongst others. We need each other. When I was a student in this ministry, this was my family. It was pretty rough for me. Not really having much support, either at home or even at school. Because those who called themselves believers there didn't mind the same things that I did. So I felt very alone, except for on Wednesdays and Sundays. We need each other. That's not changed. You know what the word zeal actually means? It means heat. You know when you're reading your Bible, you get all warm and fuzzy inside? Because God's speaking something to you that He's not speaking to anybody else to about right now at this moment? That's zeal. You know when you're witnessing to a friend or you invite a friend to, to church or to camp and you're looking over at them and you're looking at the message, you're looking at them and you're looking at the preacher and you're like, they're going to get saved. I know it. And your heart starts pumping a little bit faster. That's zeal. When you get a chance to teach or to preach and your heart starts pumping a little bit faster, maybe it is nerves. But maybe it's zeal. Maybe it's that heat. Because you're close with God. It's not His Word like a fire. That's zeal. You see in letter A, when God convicts, you believe it and you receive it with humility by faith. And when you truly receive correction by faith, letter B, you immediately and passionately obey and make all the necessary changes to honor the Lord. 2 Corinthians 7.11. Cross out 1 Corinthians as a typo. Should be 2 Corinthians 7.11. Oh, great. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, it brought about a change in you when God convicts you. And here's the change. It says, yea, what clearing of yourselves. You can think clearly now. Yea, what indignation you're determined. Yea, what fear of God. Yea, what vehement desire. Do you love God? Do you have a heat in your heart for Him? Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved. And you can read the rest of it later because it's cut off and I have no idea what it says at the end there. Thank you. <laughs> Titus 2.14, Sam. Whoa. Oh, sorry, Andy. Sorry. Sorry. Thank you for your speed. Thank you for your speed, your strength, and your aggression to obliterate my ignorance. Go ahead. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Are you zealous of good works? Do you have a violence of action to get the job done in the spiritual warfare we fight? Because who knows? Maybe, maybe rebuke and chasten means something different than what we might traditionally think of it. Any guesses here as to what you think? Because think about it. God doesn't waste space in the scripture. He just fit the last 2,000 years of church history into two chapters of Revelation. And my, all the details that are therein. So do you think it's an accident he says the words rebuke and chasten, and those two words don't show up in any other church letter? Even Ephesus, who left their first love, and that guy Origen, and all those things? No. No mention of rebuke and chasten. Even Pergamos, the guys who intermingled with the world and, and compromised? No. Not them. The words rebuke and chasten only show up in one church letter, and it's to this period. 
So what, oh what, do you think possibly it could mean, historically speaking? This is it. Yeah? The rapture of the church, because it marks the end of a dispensation, and the end of a dispensation is always marked by the failure of the steward of that dispensation. Could be. Could be the judgment seat of Christ when we stand before Him and He just vomits the sight of the time that we had on this earth as Christians and we did nothing for Him. I don't know. I tend to think maybe there is a persecution that is coming to the church that we have yet to see. We often think that this time and age is so good because people aren't being martyred left and right like they were in church history. But people are standing behind pulpits saying that if you just do good things, or if you just take a dive into the baptistry, or if you just take communion, that's how you're saved, and it has absolutely nothing to do with the Bible. And that has been going on throughout the last 100 to 140 years in this church period. I wonder if we're going to see a spanking from the Lord and that the true church... The, the, the true church will finally come forth and we'll see just how little true believers there actually are during this time. Because all of the fake, phony Christians, the, the, the outward bride, they're all going to tuck tail and run if persecution comes to the American church like it is in some third world countries right now. I wonder. I wonder. Who knows? Maybe Putin will get crazy and drop a nuke on America. And we'll all have fallout. There will be not many of us left. And our lives will completely change as we know it. Maybe. We'll see who's really in it fully, fully committed. Number five. Hear Christ's knock and open the door and let him back to where he belongs. On your throne. The throne of your heart. Not you. Letter A. You better know where the door is. He's the door in John chapter 10. And let her be. Be still and quiet to hear the knock. Told you before. Psalm 4.4. Be still. Commune with Him upon your bed. But Mark 4.39. Whoops. And He arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Just talking about this on Sunday. Different storm. Storms and trials. Maybe it's a storm that's self-inflicted on you. Maybe it's not a trial or a testing that you're going through. Maybe you're in the rut you're in because of maybe your own stupid decision, honestly. Happens. That's also a storm. But you want peace. You want a calmness. You want stillness? You need to be rebuked. And you need to let Christ back on the throne because you've kicked Him off of it. It was never meant to be that after we get saved, then we start to live our life. He does want to give us life and life more abundant in John chapter 10. But that doesn't mean doing whatever we want to do and just tagging His name along to it. He was always supposed to be on the throne of our hearts. We'll end here. Revelation 3. I know I said Numbers 25 was the last place to turn. I lied. It's not really a lie. I didn't know it was going to go here. If you open up that door, He will come in and He will sup with you. But look at verse 21. Every single church letter ends speaking about people who overcome. You can be an overcomer in Laodicea. You don't have to be a slave or cursed to be a Laodicean. Note what he says in verse 21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. You realize that no other, no other reward, I'll put it that way, to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, no other reward has as close of proximity with Jesus Christ 
as this one does. You can go back and check it out later tonight, chapters 2 and 3. Just look at the, the last verse, the last two verses of every church period, every church letter. You will not find a reward for a challenge well done that gives you and grants you personal closeness with the King of Kings. It's only reserved to overcomers of Laodicea. It's only reserved to those who choose not to be Laodicean, who chose to choose to maybe be a Philadelphian in Laodicea. You will have physical closeness with him in his throne. And yeah, it's talking about the millennial, but think about how close you can get with him now. You can be near the throne and close to him now if you just put away the distractions, if you put aside the sin and the weights that doth so easily beset you. And you pour out your heart before Him, and you allow Him to rebuke the storms of your life, whether self-inflicted or not, and you let Him rule and reign in your hearts, you will have peace. And you will have closeness with Him like no other time in your life and in your walk. That is something that is only given to us. No other church, period. If we're overcomers. But the clock is ticking as we will see, and as that alarm is, <laughs> as we will see in chapter 4 next week. Let's pray. God, as we close out part 1 of Revelation, as we close out church history, it's our time. It literally is our time in church history. That's not just a cliched verse we get from, from uh, Esther for such a time as this. No, this is our time in church history, literally. And we don't have to be cursed to be Laodiceans. So change us. Have all of us. Whatever it is we're holding on deep inside the recesses of our being, Lord, tear it asunder. Rip it out. Rip that weed out by the roots. May we be willing to give it over to you. May we be willing to let Christ have his way for us, way with us, that he may have the preeminence because you alone are worthy of the glory, of the honor, of the praise to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory and dominion forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.